You're listening to Agency Dealmasters, brought to you by Bridge. This interview is brought to you by Worldwide Partners, a global network of more than 75 independent agencies in over 40 countries who support the world's most heralded brands. To learn how Worldwide Partners can help you reimagine growth for your business, then visit worldwidepartners.com. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest, and it's not every day that you get to speak to the co-founder of Mother, one of the most awarded creative agencies in the world. Libby Brockoff is the co-founder and partner at her new agency, Odysseus Arms, an award-winning independent creative agency who work with Fortune 500 brands like Facebook, YouTube, Microsoft, just, just go down the list of some of the biggest brands in the world. We talk about everything from setting up mother in the early days, uh, how to stay creative. We talk about diversity and inclusion. We we talk about so much. It's just an absolutely jam-packed episode, which you do not want to miss. By the way, stick around until the end where you'll hear my chat with John Harris, the CEO of Worldwide Partners. They're actually the sponsors of this series. He shares his thoughts about the value the network delivers to independent agencies and their members. If you're interested in anything to do with people, culture, creativity, independent agencies, marketing, then you are absolutely going to love this conversation. So without me keeping you in suspense any further, my conversation with Libby Brockoff. My name is Nathan Anibaba, and this is Agency Dealmasters. Agency Dealmasters is a series of conversations with world-class agency leaders building great agency businesses. I believe everyone belongs in the growth journey, and this show is dedicated to the stories and the lessons of ambitious agency builders of all types by examining their history, competitive advantage, and what makes them tick. Now, let's jump in. Libby Brockoff is the co-founder and creative director at Odysseus Arms, an award-winning independent ad agency that provides creativity and brand innovation for the modern CMO. Libby was named by Campaign Magazine as one of the most influential advertising women in the past century. Clients include the likes of Body Shop, E-Network, Facebook, YouTube, Microsoft, Capital One, Amnesty International, Amazon just got on the list of the biggest brands in the world. She also co-founded Mother in 1996, one of the world's most respected independent creative agencies. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Libby Brockoff, welcome to Agency Dealmasters. Thank you so much, Nathan. I really appreciate you having me. It's it's a pleasure to speak to somebody in Britain today, so I love it. It's an absolute pleasure having you on the show. It's not very often that we have agency royalty with us. So thank you very much for for joining. Let's get into your background before we get into all all of the amazing things that you're doing at Odysseus Arms. Um, You co-founded Mother in 1996. I think we should start there with three other other people around a coffee table uh, in London. They are now one of the most awarded independent agencies in the world. Did you ever think that the agency would become what it has become today? That's that's an awesome question. I mean, let's go back to 1996, though. Like, what a cool time in London, right? Um, and it's Mother's 25th anniversary, actually, this year. 
But imagine rocking up in your early 20s um, to Cool Britannia and, you know, everything that was happening with Tony Blair's government. We got the Spice Girls. Um, mother launched the fifth television station. So I actually got to, to shoot with them, uh, Blur, Oasis. But I mean, what a great time, right? Incredible. Uh, to be there. So in terms of thinking about the agency um, and what it would become, you know, creatives have always changed the fortunes of brands. We've gotten CMOs promoted. Um, and if you're a creative, I think it's hard not to believe in doubling down on creativity. Um, and lucky enough, I was able to meet Robert Saville and, you know, somebody that also believed in creativity. And so in some ways, it's not a surprise. I think creativity and innovation have to continue to, to drive the world forward. So in some ways, I'm not surprised at at what it could become today. Um, and you know, we we started that brand by making true fans of all of the products and and brands that we worked on. So one of the first things, if you remember Super Noodles, well, it's still part of English culture, but sure. they were <laughs> um, not doing much advertising and not really talking that much to to their consumers and that work that we did you know made them open up umpteen new noodle factories they had to get a gentleman that had to fly around to clean these machines i mean we completely upended that marketing department and that company and and those are the kind of things that you know that we live for in creativity so take us back to that founding sort of idea in 1996, where the three of you came around the table. What was the founding idea for the agency? What, what were you trying to create that was different to what had existed before? And what was the vision for the company at that time? Right. Well, how Henry Chaldicott kind of paved the way for newer agencies, but it, it was pretty easy to stand out in the UK at that time. Um, I think the main thing for me was it was actually printed in campaign that the agency was going to be called Tom, Dick and Harry. And if you know, Robert Saville, um, you would know that that was his way of saying that, you know, all the English shops have somebody's name on the door. And that was true. There had been no other agencies named anything else except for the founders names. Um, but I, I said to him, you know, I think that, that this company has the potential to be so much more than that. And I want you to change the name. <laughs> and so he said to me, well, we've already gotten it in campaign and we're sort of off and running and we have an account. Um, and, and I sort of said, well, you know, and luckily he's a businessman um, at the heart of everything. He's massively creative, but he's also an extraordinary business person. And I think realizing that, that creativity um, and being able to make things um, is really like the vision for a modern brand and something that can make it live forever. So um, 25 years ago, we talked about overhauling the creative shop. And for me, a lot of those ideas that I talked to Robert about were kind of getting rid of account men, <laughs> which he he started as an account man. Um, and, uh, he actually started in the mail room 
And thanks to Tim Mellers kind of realized this is an amazing skit artist, writer, business person. And he gave Robert the tip that, you know, maybe you should take a pay cut and become a copywriter. And so that was the start of him becoming the chief creative officer of GGT. And I sort of met him three years later. And I think by that time, um, he truly understood what creativity meant. And so every person working in our company needed to be a thinker, a contributor. So I told him, absolutely no account people. We won't have any secretaries. Every admin person should be an intern. Um, and so we have, we had a, one of the best creative teams as our in, as our secretaries at the front desk, making food at lunch, um, because I wanted everybody to be part of it. Um, nobody was going to be sort of a cog in this, in this, uh, place. So I think that's an important part of what that vision could be internally. And then obviously like what that means to brands is really important. Mm. And obviously talking about creativity and giving birth to things, I mean, mothers, that's what mothers are. That's what mothers do. So it, it makes perfect sense, um, especially with the name. Exactly. It's like the ultimate form of creation. Definitely. So take us back to the beginning of your career then, before we talk about Odysseus Arms. Like, What were the main influences that formed the way that you think about advertising and media and creativity? What attracted you to the industry in the first place? I actually got super lucky. I did tons of things when I was a younger person. Um, and my school forced me to do an internship. Forced you. <laughs> exactly. It was part of our requirements. And I was lucky. Um, a local artist, graphic designer, Mia Bosna, took me into her studio. And I had never been able to focus on art before. I had a million other things that I was interested in doing. And it was that focus and being in that studio I knew, you know, forever that I wanted to be in a creative place. I mean, they give people advice now that you should learn something new for at least five minutes a day. And if you look at our industry, we spend every day, all day learning new things. Um, and so I think that's something that is super appealing to me um, and something I gravitated towards. I mean, we... I mean, it's, it's pretty common in our industry. People say we really have the best jobs ever. And I'm continually reminded of that uh, during my workday. Worldwide Partners is one of the largest networks of independent marketing services agencies in the world. They offer brand marketeers and agencies a global platform to reimagine their growth. They've got over 75 agencies in over 40 different countries. And that means that brands and agencies get access to global talent with localized insight to create impactful campaigns that are delivered locally, nationally, and with international scale. Learn more at worldwidepartners.com. So fast forwarded to 2011, you co-found Odysseus Arms, where you are now. You provide creativity and brand innovation for the modern CMO. What is the modern CMO and how does he or she differ to previous incarnations of a CMO? Like what does their world look like today and how is it different to previous CMOs? 
Yeah, that that's interesting to think about. Um, as you know, Nathan, I've heard a lot of people on your podcasts. Our world is driven by numbers, right? And ROI and this lower funnel data that is really driving a lot of what CMOs have to do. And on the flip side, it's really hard to measure brand love. So they're really in a conundrum because lower funnel metrics make shareholders really happy because they can actually see those numbers and those results. But, you know, the good CMOs know how much that brand love and upper funnel stimulation can drive the lower funnel. Um, when they're put into these jobs, they have a limited time to make a difference. Um, I think it's hugely stressful for people guiding brands. And their staff has been cut. So they don't have any collaborators. Most of the people that we work with want to hang out with myself and Franklin, my co-founder, um, because they don't have any staff anymore. Um, and then I think the biggest driver is the demanding consumers. The consumers are next level. Um, their demands for how they want brands to talk to them how they want brands to address society's issues. Um, I think creativity's never played a bigger role um, in, in what has to happen with these brands. So the CMOs weapons used to be, you know, out of home, print, television. Um, and now their weapons are like AI, Snapchat, TikTok, co-branding, Super Bowl, you know, out of home influencers. So um, they're, they're in a really tricky place in the modern world, I think. Um, and, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about how we solve that because it's a fascination of mine, um, how to, how to really help them. But, you know, you think of, of consumers and I, a Harvard, um, business professor did a study and it's like 95% of our purchase decisions are emotional. So when you actually really think about what that means, like in order for you to have an emotional um, appeal to a brand, you have to have a relationship with it. And so the CMOs have to do that work to kind of get that emotion. Right. And so that's why, um, you know, at my current agency, I really try to solve for people, the people in the world. Um, and I created a proprietary process called the third eye. And I was happy as a female owner and co-founder to have trademarked it last year. Um, and what it's really about, you know, is when I was coming up through the industry, people always thought I was a bit strange because I cared a lot about what the strategists and planners were telling us about the consumers. And Usually those two people sit on different floors and agencies. The strategists sit on one floor and the creatives sit on another floor. And right before the client meeting, they try and figure out how they're <laughs> going to come together and they're going to sell this. And they're going right. to tell people how this idea really intersects what consumers want. So very early um, into Odysseus Arms, I thought, Let's create a living conversation with consumers. Let's put consumers into the room when we just have like rough sketches and let's ask them, like, do you think this is going to be good? And so it's a big taboo in our industry because creatives don't want to show consumers anything because they're scared it's going to get killed. It's going to die. 
Um, and I thought the exact opposite. I want them to be part of the creative development um, and get that collaboration. And, you know, as you know, I'm in San Francisco, so it looks a lot like tech agile development, right? So any software engineers who are listening to me are probably recognizing exactly what I'm doing and, and using an empathy-driven approach. So we iterate, test, and design, and then you rinse and repeat. Um, and so that's changed the last 12 years of my life. And that's when, when in this conversation, you know, my main theme throughout it is people. People drive me. Um, they drive the brands that I'm working on um, and kind of taking, taking those people out of being like archetypes and personas um, and actually, uh, listening to them. And, you know, when I, I heard a lot of people on your podcast, data is obviously a huge conversation. Um, but when you think about it, it's, it's a rear view mirror, right? It tells you sort of what happened last year. Um, and it's great. It's part of it. And we have a tech stack as well built into the third eye, but, um, every day, real time knowledge on how your brand is doing, I think is crucial to the CMOs, to brands. God, there's so much there to unpack. Like, how long have we got? Um, <laughs> we're going to have to lock the door and, and, and be here for a couple of hours. Okay, so the first thing there is about emotional decision-making. And we know both in B2B and B2C, emotions drive so much of the decision-making process. Um, you know, you said that it was it was ninety five percent, but I, I you know I heard the other day that like every decision ultimately comes down to an emotional decision. What we're going to have for dinner, what, what we're going to do with our partners, our spouses, what job we're going to get, are we going to buy that software? Every decision ultimately comes down to an emotional decision. So understanding emotions is crucial. Um, how do you get past the pushback of Yes, have have consumers in the room when you're doing that research. But as we know, consumers are famous for saying one thing and doing the other. You know, people don't do what they say and don't say what they they actually going to do. How do you get past actually testing for people in a room who say they're going to do one thing, but actually end up doing a completely different thing that's driven by an underlying emotional decision that they're not even conscious of? I think that's a really interesting question. Um, and I, I think that part of it is, I mean, this, this obviously leads back to AI, but it's human AI and it's watching people's reaction to things. So um, th there's a couple things. A, a lot of the discussions that we have with consumers, our work isn't finished. We're showing something half done, half created, a notion of an idea. And instead of, so it's not a pass fail. It's an iterative process. And so actually those consumers help add to the ideas. They steer us in the right direction. They give us warning flags. So I don't really worry too much about that because we're, we're not looking at final pieces of work and sort of saying in or out. Um, and I think that, that they have a lot of knowledge. People are very smart they're very smart about marketing and they have a lot to add to the conversation. And that's what I think it's really about. Agency Deal Masters is brought to you by Bridge, the growth focused podcast agency. We help ambitious agencies talk to the right brands through the power of podcasting. 
generate leads, win new business and increase reputation. Check out our clients' podcasts and find more resources to keep learning at bridgegrowth.org. Now, back to the show. Let's talk a little bit about creativity and specifically the culture of your agency, because I know that's something that really kind of separates you from, from other agencies. But again, I speak to a lot of agency owners and they and they tell me that their culture is different and unique and differentiated. And then we ask them why. And then and, and sometimes, you know, they struggle to articulate it. How do you explain how the culture of Odysseus Arms is is different um, that allows you to create superior work for your clients. How does that culture manifest itself day to day? Absolutely. Um, the most important thing is making people active participants and allowing people, giving people access. That's the biggest thing straight away when you come to our shop is that you pretty much have access to anything. Um, you can present in any client meeting. You can have ideas in any meeting. You can swim around anywhere. If you watch the Grammys on Sunday, John Baptiste won five awards for best, you know, music video, best song, everything. Um, and so probably about three months ago, we had a film we needed to make. And I said to my producer, who's a very young woman, probably 25 years old or something, um, we don't have any directors. I said, I I've looked around everywhere. I can't find anybody I want to make this. I said, what we really need is a great music video director. So go find a great music video director. And <laughs> this woman went away and shot her shot and called up Alan Ferguson. Alan Ferguson is the director who directed John Betty's uh, freedom video that, that won at the Grammys. And so she had no fear to ring him up. Wow. And so that access and that idea that anything's possible, that's what I want to do every day for the people who work for me. I just want people to work smart. I'm really against sweatshops. I grew up in, in working for all the best sweatshops. <laughs> and I, I don't think that we need that. Um, I think that uh, for 12 years, this agency has been able to work smart. Every person that works here has a passion, whether it's theater, children, dogs, I don't care what it is, but it's part of life and talking to people and getting outside. So, you know, um, giving people that access is very important to me. And, you know, I, I think the best thing that you can do for somebody is to be their backer. Like, I feel like I back all these people, like I'm the person, you know, that lets them know things are possible. I mean, my sister is an accountant. She owns a, a, an accounting firm and you know, she gets to put things into Google spreadsheets. And then there's a thing at the bottom that tells her that she's the right. answer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we don't have that. And so we don't have that. I don't know what's going to go viral. I can't tell you what what's going to make people, to your point, um, feel passionate on that particular day. And so, you know, the best thing that we can do with innovators is back them and, and do as much as we can to kind of unlock ideas and let them swim around. And to your point, a huge part of unlocking ideas is actually getting 
lots of different ideas at the table. And this comes back to the diversity conversation. Because I know that you're a huge proponent of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, you've done a huge amount of work there. Um, you, uh, you know, I, I know a lot of the leadership team are female um, within within the agency, um, and it's a, it's a huge part of um, kind of why you 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 exist. Talk a little bit about the importance, especially as a creative agency, of um, a, a diverse kind of workforce, um, and especially in the context of kind of where we are today in 2022, post George Floyd. I'm going to say post Black Lives Matter as well, because it feels as though we've kind of moved. Have we moved on from that conversation? It feels as though we've missed a moment or the moment was there and it was we were there to capitalize on it, but it's not there anymore. Like, where are we in that whole conversation? I know we haven't got a huge amount of time. And that's a big topic to get into, but just tell me your thoughts on all of, all of that stuff. You know, I feel badly saying this, but I see little progression. And I say that because I still see hate crimes. I still see how people have put a small bandaid on things and haven't really changed things. I haven't figured out a way to encapsulate it better than how Tina Fey explained it. But SNL had a really big problem, probably about 15 years. Yeah, she's amazing. Um, but she explained what happened to Saturday Night Live. And so what happened is you had women, you had black comedians, you had Asian comedians, and they were coming to a table of white men, older white men. And so when they were explaining their ideas and their skit ideas, none of these people understood what they were talking about. And so once SNL changed the people who were at the table deciding on what skits were going to go on, that changed Saturday Night Live forever. So if you don't have anybody at the table who understands those conversations, you, you can't really move forward. And so that that explanation just had a huge impact you know, for me. It's, it's not the people coming to the table. It's the people listening at the table. Um, and so unless you start to change that, it's very, very difficult to change the conversation. Um, right now we're working with a program called Black Internship, and it's been amazing so far. One of the most profound things when I got on the first conference call was not about like, oh, okay, you're going to get like two Black interns. It's about Black excellence. So it's about taking these people and putting them into senior roles. So it's not even about getting them into the industry. And that's a big part of it is that, you know, still today, a lot of people don't know, oh, there's people who make advertising. There's people who affect culture. People who haven't been exposed to it don't really know how things get done. Um, and so we're able to bring people into the advertising community in every aspect. But I think um, the, inspiration and the goal of bringing them to the highest level is what is really inspiring to me and what I know will actually change things. And also, this is actually doing something. We can all write a pledge on our website that says, you know, we support BIPOC and we have a whole policy and we're good. But, but actually doing it, they had 40 interns last year. If they want to make this much bigger, I think 40 is nothing. I mean, they want to get 400 agencies eventually 
into this program. But all 40 of those people got hired afterwards. I mean, that's doing something. <laughs> that that's that's appealing to me. And and as you say, not only having them there, but actually promoting them to senior leadership. Um, so my my wife is a senior brand manager for a large brand who will remain nameless for this show. She's one of two black senior marketeers within the organization. Um, now she's been in line. She's been in uh, in role for. A, many years doing a fantastic job um the company put out on on their social media the fact that they want to attract black talent they want to promote them to senior levels and they're doing a lot to uh advance um diversity equity and inclusion she came to me the other day and said look there are two of us here that are doing really really well in our jobs and no one has said anything to us about progression about we are we're in the role we're there why is no one talk, coming to us about it? But yet, from their, from a promotional point of view, from an out, outbound point of view, that's what the company is saying. So there's a difference between what organizations, it seems, are saying and what how they're treating their Black and diverse staff inside the organization. And, and, and that needs to change, if, if nothing else. And that was a big reason that, you know, when you said, well, what's happened after George Floyd? And I'm like, Basically, after George Floyd and Me Too, right away, the industry press just put all these people forward into these positions. But a lot hasn't changed. Um, and I feel like in some cases, they just put them there for the press release. And so it's it's the people that have been able to to make a difference. But I feel like we still have so far to go. I mean, I hate hearing your the story of your yeah, wife. It's horrible. It, it crushes me. I mean, the only advice that that I would give to her though is write the plan. Go to someone there and tell them tell them what you want to do and tell them how you're going to get there. Hmm. Love it. Let's talk a little bit about mental health because there was an incident that happened at the Oscars a couple of weeks ago. You may have heard of it. You may have Something happened with Will Smith. He got on stage and and did something crazy. Um, there there is an epidemic of 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 mental you know jokes aside, but you know there there there's a huge issue right now. And, and call it post pandemic, uh, it, it's a post pandemic thing. God knows what's given rise to it. Maybe it's because of the fact that we've got social media now and we can be so much more. It's so much more visible, and people have been given permission to speak about these things. What what do you think is given rise to this, and how should brands be talking about it or inserting themselves in this quite sensitive conversation at the moment? Well, I'll tell you, every person wants the acknowledgement that mental health is a real issue. Um, I think that it's just been an absolute taboo in our country. Um, People have avoided getting help. They thought it might have an impact on their work environment, their promotion. No one wanted any like trace of mental health issues. Um, and basically that exploded literally. I mean, you bring up the Will Smith issue. Um, I think that right now in this country, we're ev everyone's kind of coming out of this pandemic. It hasn't been a nice 
um, you know, celebratory uh, like arrival into 2022, the violence and the drama that we have seen this year is to me all speaks to the mental health of every individual and something that I think companies and, and, you know, people like myself running agencies need to be super aware of how we can help people and, um, just realize that, that people are different. I can't stand hearing like, we're, we're going to go back. Like things are back to normal. I think nothing's ever going back. There is no normal. I think that we, there will be studies, um, about how people have been affected dramatically from the last two years. And so I know this, this is a, people say this a lot, but honestly, like, let's be kind, let's be kind to each other. Because, um, if we have people like Will Smith reacting that way, humans are going through stuff right now. And, when, when we step up to interact with people, we need to realize that. And when, you know, I think it's great that you brought up brands, right? Because I think after this experience, George Floyd, me too, the pandemic, people have come out the other side as different people. And that's why we've seen so much movement and excitement in our industry, because there's been a freedom for brands to actually be who they are. And not just that, the consumers have changed. Anything a consumer thought about a brand before all this, they think differently now. Um, you know, in our country, if you try to order Chick-fil-A to a school, those kids will walk out of that school. They will not put up with a company like that. The rest of the country might love those chicken sandwiches, but it's a reality that that people have changed and and the brands that that recognize that and aren't scared to look at potentially how they have to change and how they have to show up for people you know um will be left behind i think it's the brands that are proactive that are going to you know stay up to date with where we are as people where we are with our mental health it's a very complicated issue, though, because on one hand, you could argue like brands, all brands, it seems as though today are inserting themselves into the cultural conversation today. And it feels as though they, they need to. They're being compulsed, compulsed to because of their consumers. Um, but is uh, my question, is that is that a good thing? Because, it, you know, 20, 30 years ago, it seems as though many brands weren't doing that. Today, it seems as though all brands are. And it it, it 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 plays into, you know, this whole thing with Russia, Russia and Ukraine, you know, regardless of kind of what we think about it, a ton of brands have pulled out of out of Russia now, partly because that's driven by consumers demanding that they do that, right? Um, uh, for fear of, so, so brands have pulled out of Russia for fear of uh, getting a backlash for their consumers in the States or in, in their home markets. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? I don't know. I think that, well, I mean, you you bring up the Ukraine. I think that what that shows, and it, it's actually, I think, a beautiful thing, is that people aren't going to be passive anymore. I mean, that's been 
the the most enlightening part of the Ukraine war is that that country didn't they fought every step of the way. I mean, it has been so inspiring. How can you not back them? I mean, I'm all for brands getting behind that because I think that, you know, this is part of what I was talking to you about with the third eye is that people are participants in a brand. You can have a brand and it can be what you want. And 50% of that is the consumer and what they think and how they're going to talk about you because they're going to talk about you on the internet. So, you know, um, I think that it's, it's all part of people being able to say, I have a voice in this. I, I can have an impact. And, um, I think that brands listening to their consumers is, is probably the most important thing they can do right now. Hmm. Couldn't agree more. Libby, I could talk to you all day, but we're fast running out of time. Um, I can't do that. We have to end the podcast at some point. So I can't let you go without us jumping into our favorite questions. These are the questions that I ask all of my guests. So I'm excited to ask you some of them as well. It's like, who's the person behind the brand sort of questions. Are you ready? Yes, I hope so. <laughs> well, we're going to find out. So first one, tell us about a time when you failed and what you learned from that experience. Probably the number one fail is people are like, why did you ever leave mother? <laughs> and, I, and I don't think that I ever talked about it on a podcast before. Let's, so let's get um, into it. Let's get into it. Um, and, and I think it's relevant to everything that we've been talking about. But, you know, I had no female mentors in this business um, coming up through it. I was a very young woman. I wanted to get married and I wanted to have kids. Um, and I didn't know how to do that. And it it taught me the hardest lesson ever, but it's changed me forever, which is like never stop thinking about ideas on how to solve things. You know, the rear view mirror Libby is just like, oh my gosh, why didn't I go to Robert with a 10 step plan on how I'm going to set mother up in the USA? Um, right. You know, um, a million different ways that, that I could have remained part of that. And part of it's just the lack of confidence that, that women have to be able to say, no, I was like a major part of establishing how this agency was going to change culture. And I deserve to be in it, even though I want to get married and I want to have kids and like, you know, reaching out for help. Like, how do I, um, how do I get people around me to help figure that out? I mean, it's so simple for me to think about that now, but I guess the best part, uh, you know, is that it, it changed my life in terms of like, um, you, you don't know what's around a corner. So like push for that and try to have a million ideas to, to solve a problem. So. Great answer. I'm going to love these questions. Okay. Next one. Tell us about some of your early mentors who influenced the way that you think about creativity and advertising and brands and all of that good stuff. I mean, I feel like I hit the mother load on this. I worked at Shiat Day. I mean, Jay Shiat told me, you know, always to think about what's next. I got to work for Donnie Deutsch. I mean, he told me, taught me to be bold and newsworthy. Uh, Franklin Tipton told me everything about craft and being provocative and introduced me to the DNAD awards and made me watch every videotape when videotape still existed. <laughs> um, and then lastly, 
I met Robert Saville and he's the person that really, you know, lifted me up and gave me the confidence at that time when it wasn't trendy to support young women. I was 27 years old and he made me a partner in that company and gave me equity. That's unheard of. I had more equity in that company than than probably any of the other agency owners in London at that time. Um, and so, like I said, and when it wasn't trendy, he did this and he gave me the confidence to create. And, uh, you know, I'll never, I'll never forget that. Tell us about some of your favorite books. What do you read for personal and professional development? So I used to read so many books by Dave Eggers and I love Steve Martin. And about two years ago, I kind of joined this this bandwagon of like okay i'm not going to read any more male white books just <laughs> and and it's true i'm like i i'm not going to do that anymore i've done that for a really long time and i need to expand horizons or exactly what? like listen to other voices um so i really um if you haven't checked out uh savage salvage the bones um that's jesmine ward um, Maya Angelou, um, I've checked out, a, she's, she has amazing, I can't even, there's, there's no just one great book. Um, check those out. Another thing, and, and I think this goes back to my passion for real humans is I just love autobiographies. Um, so I love Hillary Clinton's, um, living history. I think that, yes, it's really good. It's very, um, historical and you need to know a lot of shit. And I kind of like that about it. It really pushes you. Um, but it's, it's a great book and, um, I love any autobiography. The other thing that I love, and I'm sure this is of no interest to anybody on your, that listens to your podcast, but I'm very into art books. I'm a huge Andy Warhol fan. Um, when you think about the 1960s, um, and when you think about the factory that he created and everything that happened with popism, um, it's truly fascinating to me. I see it as a huge inspiration. I was also a docent at the Walker Modern Art Museum in Minneapolis, and Matthew Barney was the person that I chose to do all of my presentations on or however I had to graduate to be a docent. Um, and trying to understand the crew master series and that book is, uh, truly fascinating. Um, I think the other, um, book that I love that if you're into design at all, seems like a weird recommendation, but, uh, there's a Japanese book called the dictionary of color combinations. There's no words in it, <laughs> but, um, if you like to look at amazing color combinations, um, I think there's um, 348 different combinations in that book, but it is a gorgeous book. Okay. Um, last couple of questions. What advice would you give to a young person or millennial who wants to start their career in a creative agency? The two most important things are learn how to write and learn how to draw. They are the two most important skills that will move you forward and be able to help you do anything you want to achieve. If you can write an idea up or write a concept or a plan, 
you can move forward and work your way around everything. I, th- I think the other thing is respect. Um, be confident, but don't be disrespectful. Um, there's a lot of things that you can't see that, that people before you have done effort that's been put in. So, you know, don't get over your skis and just use that confidence to, to be able to have the effect that you want to have. I think that's the biggest thing is millennials want to have an effect. They have had an amazing effect on us. I think that they're actually part of, you know, when we talk about mental health, I think they're the first people that called time out on mental health, right? And said, no, we're, we're, we want to go to yoga. We're going to take our dogs for a walk and we're going to normalize life. And I think we should all thank them for it. Uh, quite honestly, like I said, having grown up in, in every sweatshop, um, agency, uh, in America. So, um, you know, that, that would be my advice. And my final question, Libby, what do you know about growing a creative agency today that you wish you knew at the beginning of your career? I think the biggest thing is access to people. I don't think I realized how much access you have to people and how much people are willing to help and will actually pick up the phone. I was just super intimidated, super imposter effect, like had um, just a lot of self-worth confidence type issues that I think is really common for women my age. Um, And so once I got over that, I mean, you know, I called up Sir Martin Sorrell like last year. I he he did a of podcast, <laughs> but he he called up. A, he had a podcast and he left his email. So I emailed him and I said, "Hey, I want to talk to you." And that, if I had known that, <laughs> like thirty years ago, I think I'd be a lot farther ahead. I mean, I just like tapped right into his living room and zoomed with him, and he made it happen like straight away. So. um, I would say, you know, that's really important to me. I offer up tons of internships at my company because I can't stand when I get a resume or a CV, as you say, um, and, and people haven't actually worked in our industry. And I said, how do you know that you could like sit here and, and make ideas all day or, or work on brands? Um, and I think that, that it's really important to be accessible great place to end Libby thank you so much for doing this oh thank you it was it's been great to meet you and I really appreciate you having me on we have been speaking with Libby Brockoff she's currently a partner and creative director at Odysseus Arms if you enjoyed this conversation then head over to Apple Podcasts where you can listen to over 170 such conversations we've had now with world-class leaders in the agency world Head over to agencydealmasters.com and sign up to our weekly newsletter for exclusive subscriber-only content not shared on the main feed. Follow us on LinkedIn and send me a message there if you want to get in touch. We would be unable to do this show without our very own dealmasters. Tyler Baller is our booker. Christoph Borastrek is our executive producer. I'm Nathan Anibaba. You've been listening to Agency Dealmasters. This episode was brought to you by Worldwide Partners, a network of over 75 independent marketing services agencies from over 40 countries, delivering outstanding work for some of the biggest brands in the world. In this episode, I sat down with John Harris, the CEO of Worldwide Partners, one of the nicest men 
in the agency world that you will ever meet. In this four-part series, John and I discuss what makes Worldwide Partners different to the traditional holding groups, which brands are best for the network to work with, um, how the agencies and the network actually use the Worldwide Partners story to attract global clients, their criteria for selecting which agencies actually get to join and which don't. It's an absolutely fascinating mini-series. So please enjoy my fascinating bite-sized chat with the CEO of Worldwide Partners, John Harris. So the network has grown at a really exceptional rate over the last three years, three and a half years. You've added more than 20 agencies to the network in the, in, in the last 12 months alone. What's behind that growth? Well, it has been client-driven and agency-driven. Um, the first has been the dynamic that we discussed of clients being frustrated with the holding company model, uh, looking for independent agencies and looking for it at scale. The other dynamic has been, so there has been a, a, a pull component to this where agencies are coming to us saying, we are in this pitch, but we are just one agency in this country, or we are in several countries, but we only have this capability. So they've leaned into the network for the diversity of capabilities that we've had. But based on the client need and agency's needs and that growth exponentially for expertise, we have made an aggressive effort to diversify our offerings to add more specialists in vertical expertise and in capabilities. So you've got the market momentum of turning to independent agencies, the clients embracing the partnering model, and us effectively leveraging those dynamics to go and grow the agencies. We've recruited new agencies and agencies that have come to us. And it's an important piece that I, I want to make here because when you look at the holding company model, I mean, scale and diversified offerings is what they promise clients all the time. It's not necessarily a, a new proposition. What the pandemic demonstrated is that collaboration, integration, and acceleration will be the driving forces of growth moving forward. And none of these are the characteristics of holding company agencies. They make up the very DNA of independent agencies. This network was founded on the premise that collaboration drives growth for our clients, our employees, and our agencies. Holding companies, on the other hand, were founded on the premise that acquisition drives growth for their shareholders. And although the holding companies, they can deliver scale and a diverse set of skill sets, diversification alone does not translate to the integration clients are demanding. Integration is an outcome of collaboration, not acquisition. And collaboration is an outcome of choice, not mandates. You noted this earlier, our agencies work together because they choose to, not because they have to. And that dynamic changes everything. The barriers to collaborations are eliminated when you have opted in. There's no incentive scheme required. It's not transactional. It is personal. And that what's, is what makes this special. And that proposition is what's driven our growth over the last four or five years. And John, you're not just accepting any agencies, are you? In, in fact, any prospective agency has to apply for membership and be approved by the, by the shareholders. What criteria do you apply to evaluating new agencies? Great question. I think the first one is a more soft criteria, and that is a spirit of collaboration. You can be 
the best independent agency and the most specialized agency or the best full service agency in the world. But if you're not willing to be all hands in and willing to collaborate, the whole proposition falls apart. And that's why we've been here for over 80 years, which is crazy to think about. Um, I did not found the network um, um, 80 years ago. Um, but collaboration would be the first and foremost thing, much softer criteria. I think harder criteria is we look for agencies that bring some geographic value to the, to the, to the mix. So if there's an open market where we do not have a presence or in major business centers where we have to provide options, uh, because clients are looking for very specific sets of skill sets and vertical experience, uh, we look at the leadership team. Uh, we've made some pretty substantial gains in um, the, the the ownership diversity of our agencies that I'm very proud of. We have much more work to be done. I think of the last 12 agencies we've added in the last nine months, uh, 40% are either female-owned, minority-owned, or female-minority-owned. So we're continuing to put emphasis there. I have found, as much as I may sound like I speak negatively about the holding company, is that we look very we look at the leadership team, and we have found that. If there are ex-holding company uh, leaders who've gone to start their own agencies, they understand the value that a global network can provide. They've just simply been waiting for it to be realized. And so, um, and then we look for vertical expertise. I, the, the example I gave on the pharmaceutical marketing, it's not just pharma. It has to be either rare diseases or, you know, vaccine launches. I mean, that's the level of capabilities and experience that we're looking at. So it's a, it's a variety of things all working together. but we, we don't just accept anybody. The agencies that are in the network uh, who are shareholders, which is about 40% of our group, you have to apply for membership and they approve the agencies because we're looking for the best. We're looking for the most collaborative because if you're an agency that's going to trust your client with another agency, you want to make sure that they are going to deliver the same level of service and the great quality work that you would do with that client. So um, that's the process for what we look for in an agency, but we're we're looking to further and consistently dimensionalize our story and proposition. And you had another one of our agencies, Nick Wood, um, sound design agency uh, that joined um, in, back in 2019. Great story. And you know, I mean, Nick's doing the sound design for the Fiat electric car, so he's not just sound design. So great dimensional stories because clients need a variety of skill sets and capabilities to to uh to meet the their precise business needs final question john when should i expect the invitation to the amsterdam event um it should... it's in your email box we will be in amsterdam in september great whether it arrives or not i am there so um make a seat at the table i can't i'm look, really looking forward to it john thank you so much for doing this really appreciate it now nah, nathan thank you you're the best it's uh I always enjoy not just speaking with you, but listening to the conversations you have here on Agency Deal Masters. And Nathan did not pay me to say that, um, but it's just you are an incredible you're you're an incredible voice for the industry, and you're bringing forth incredible voices from the industry that's allowing us all to learn. So thank you for that. You are listening to Agency Deal Masters, brought to you by Bridge, the growth focused podcast agency.